welcome to the Describe Your World podcast. This is episode two. I'm Travis, and I am with my guest, Justin Wiggins. He's the author of Surprised by Agape, Tear Nanog, Celtic Twilight, forthcoming book, Celtic Song, and he has a great love for community, coffee, pubs, England, Scotland, and Ireland. How's it going, Justin? How are you feeling? Quite well. Thank you for having me on your show, my friend. It's an honor. Of course. I'm excited. Um, Justin and I have known each other for several years now, and we'll get into a little bit later just the nature of how we met and, and sort of what that was like if we have time. But I'm really excited. He's a writer and I'm a writer, and we've got a lot to discuss as far as literature and music and faith and just a little bit of everything. But the point of today's episode is just getting to know Justin a little bit better having him describe his experiences and his sort of uh, some big moments from life and some of the things that kind of motivates him to write and create and things that inspires him. So I want to just kind of kick it off, Justin, with you taking the lead here on uh, early life. I like to frame this first section as like an origin story. So as a writer, I feel like you're going to have a really great time with that. Um, so let's talk about what life was like as a child, your education, any kind of big moments that sort of frame who you are. And then how did we get from small Justin into the writer and traveler and the guy who's passionate about John Foreman and C.S. Lewis and all those other thinkers? Uh, so I was born in 1989 in Kinston, North Carolina, <clears throat> Eastern North Carolina. And growing up, I had a very loving family was raised by some amazing women and um, was raised also in the church, but also had a very inquisitive mind. And myself, speaking for myself, and again, this isn't everyone's experience, but I had a really bad experience with Southern Will Baptist theology. Again, everyone doesn't, but I just had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions. And although I was thankful to be raised with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, um, and my Nana, my mother, my, my Aunt Kim, my grandmother, um, and there were some good male figures there, like uncles and, and cousins, and they were really great. But my, uh, and they did, again, they did a really good job cultivating those theological virtues. Um, I always just I wanted to know for myself, and I didn't want to just believe in a particular worldview because I was taught it growing up and it was also some really deep father abandonment struggles growing up. So my <clears throat> biological father was there for me some, but when I got older, um, he would disappear and then he would reappear and he just uh, sadly never battled his drug addiction and he had so many people to help him. And so that caused a deep wound and it made me really suspicious about people claiming that there's a good and loving Abba Father, <clears throat> creator that cares about all of humanity. So, um, and then around the age of uh, 18, I discovered the music of John Foreman and Switchfoot. And I really loved their music because I grew up on a lot of Bob Dylan and Bon Jovi, U2, The Beatles, Simon Garfunkel, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Inya. So I, at, I really loved hearing all of those different influences in Switchfoot's music, <clears throat> and I was just really struggling and had a, a bit of a stuttering issue and was really lost and confused and, um, you know, didn't know how to articulate my doubts and my questions. And then when I discovered Switchfoot's music, it was very healing and very therapeutic, and that was during high school. And so during high school, I started to come out of my shell a bit. I wasn't as shy as I was 
in elementary school and middle school. I was still a confused agnostic, but I'd never really came out as one because if you do in that sort of uh, community, you're often ostracized from the herd. And so I just never came out with saying, oh, I'm an agnostic just because I suppose I was a coward and not brave enough. Um, and also I didn't really know how to articulate those doubts and questions. And so, um, but John Foreman would reference C.S. Lewis in interviews I would read online. And in, um, uh, I remember a particular uh, YouTube video of him talking about the This Is Home song that they wrote for the Prince Caspian movie. And he, he, he kept referencing C.S. Lewis. And I'm embarrassed to say this because I know many people grow up reading Narnia or have Narnia read to them. I had no idea who, who, he, who the writer was. Right. Um, and I wasn't a voracious reader growing up. I re you know, I read books like Jill Silverstein, um, yeah, Where the Sidewalk Ends, The Giving Tree. And so books here and there, but I wasn't a voracious reader. And uh, honestly, didn't really have an understanding of how important uh, storytelling and, uh, and art is to humanity. And it was very foreign to me. And um, I just decided to eventually check out Lewis's writings. And um, I was intrigued when Foreman, talking about the context of what inspired him to write This Is Home, he was talking about this yearning and longing that humanity has uh, for their that's uh, transcendent and that's for something outside of themselves and I found it really interesting I was I didn't know <laughs> I was like what is he talking about it's it's really interesting but it's it really intrigued me and you know I really admired the fact that he was a follower of Christ and um, you know there's no sacred secular either or and they made music for people of all worldviews, which is very different in contrast to how I grew up learning, you know, this is sacred and this is secular. You can listen to this. You can't listen to this. And they sort of tore that false either or to bits. And that was really healing for me. And I was like, wow, I've never knew that, you know. And, and I really admired the fact that they lived out their faith and loved people of all worldviews. And so I thought there must be something to this, you know, Christianity thing. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I remember getting a, um, a one-in-volume set of the Chronicles of Narnia when I was 18, and I was just starting community college, was really excited. Um, I had started to read poets like Robert Frost. He was the first uh, poet that I seriously read, and through him, he got me interested in uh, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson and T.S. Eliot and others. And then when I read Lewis, oh my, it changed everything. Um, I still remember the very day and the very moment, the very hour, and I read the creation story in The Magician's Nephew, and I just remember experiencing this really poignant sense of joy that was like a combination, as Tolkien and Lewis have described, as a type of uh, uh, bitter, it's bittersweet. It's like joy and grief combined together. And as a confused agnostic, part of me wanted to rationalize it and just explain it away and think, oh, well, it's just a chemical reaction going on in my body. But I never bought into the Enlightenment rationalistic worldview, honestly, because I found it just very dull. And it, it finite 
human reasoning is well it's finite you know and i was always just really, <laughs> right just always really suspicious of it. it's like the laws of physics came into being and uh we're working on explaining that and that just never really fully satisfied me i was like uh, i'm not just gonna stay in the agnostic uh camp i really want to know <clears throat> or stay as an agnostic i really want to know if there's a a god or gods or some force i wasn't sure and then having that experience of reading the creation story and the magician's nephew was my first transcendent experience of that zinzu joy that lewis wrote about you know that beautiful german word expressing the yearning and longing that people experience evoked by a landscape or a piece of music or love or, um, you know, really deep personal experiences of um, um, the love of God or, you know, uh, a piece of visual art or a film, whatever it might be, it's different for different people. And Lewis had that same experience when he was a young atheist in 16 and studying under what he, uh, he was called the great knock, William Kirkpatrick was his tutor. And he read George MacDonald's Fantasties and uh it's he said it baptized his imagination and you know he and the rest uh, uh, naturally took longer you know he came to know christ two years later but he from that point was a great admirer of the great scottish writer and so my encounter with aslan singing narnia into being and having that really powerful spiritual experience really stayed with me and sowed the seed and although i found other worldviews interesting i had a gradual conversion I just came to a point where I realized I was a broken sinner and I, in need of grace. And I didn't find it derogatory. Um, I didn't find it degrading with, <clears throat> like Richard Dawkins would claim. And I just marveled at the fact that if the creator of humanity loved all of us enough to come as a first century rabbi and to under, uh, through his incarnation, death and resurrection, defeat the powers of death and hell and make hope and healing and redemption right here and right now and give a glimpse of what is to come i marveled at that and i thought okay well if this god loves humanity enough to you know to portray agape love embodied in jesus of nazareth then that's the god i want to follow and that's the god i want to serve and so i had a gradual conversion um and uh you know i would meet friends at pubs and coffee shops and graduated from pitt community college and then i went to east carolina university um you know and i was i was cultivating my writing um at first it was drivel it was so bloody awful um <laughs> but it eventually got better and i found <clears throat> uh great freedom in writing and discovering um you know uh Neil Gaiman or Maya Angelou, um, the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, all those amazing writers and, and McDonald and Tolkien and Madeline Lingo, Frederick Buechner, Henry Now, and just, I couldn't get enough of it. And it was amazing to me. And I finally understood uh, the importance of imagination and beauty in the life of a Christian and, um, and uh, understood all as art as a sacramental gift. And art was how... I, art was, God used art to bring me to him and art was how I came to, it was through art that I came to know Christ. And I love that Jesus of Nazareth told 
you know, parables in the first century to the poor and the freaks and the broken and the outcast, you know, in a, he, he told these fascinating, uh, moving stories for people, anyone to be able to understand. And I, I was like, okay, so God is the great storyteller. He's the great bard to, uh, reference an Irish bardic, um, you know, thing, um, the great storyteller, the great artist. And that was really moving to me. And so, uh, yeah, it felt great to find my identity in Christ at that point. Uh, but as with life, things took quite a drastic turn when, uh, and I thought, uh, when I was at East Carolina university and I thought I had this unrealistic expectation that it was going to be true sailing North, you know, life was going to be much easier because I came to know Christ and found my identity and, uh, uh, what I saw as a vocation and, uh, Oh, how wrong I was. So, um, yeah, it you, never really works like that with Christianity. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And so, um, years and years and years of suppressed father abandonment struggles that I thought I dealt with and I had not came out full force when I was at East Carolina university and it was really hard and I was starting to have really horrific lows and it was really alarming because I had never had such hellish lows before and couldn't function and uh, started to have a really difficult sleeping pattern and it was a dark night of the soul my friend and there were just and you know I wrote about it in the first book surprised by agape and those that know me very well um, they know my story and you know we all have our own unique life narrative that's just as important as anyone else's um, and it was really difficult, but there was two suicide attempts and two hospitalizations. Um, some family members didn't know how to respond. Um, some did, uh, and it was a really dark time. And I would definitely through in that period, went through a period of atheism. I didn't become an atheist, but I just found it really difficult to believe in a good and, and loving God. And I was just really bitter and I wondered why I couldn't function and why. And it felt like a curse to be a conscious human being on the planet. And man, it was really, really painful. But um, out of all that suffering, um, I was able to, to find good counseling and I was able to cultivate community. <clears throat> and uh, I ended up moving to the mountains of North Carolina. And after doing barista jobs for a few years, I didn't finish at ECU, but I... Um, I came to an Inklings conference at Montreat College, which is uh, in Montreat, which isn't far from Black Mountain, North Carolina, and about 20 minutes. Black Mountain's about 20 minutes from Asheville. And so went to the Inklings conference, met Dr. Don King, great C.S. Lewis scholar and friend, and uh, wanted to just move on from Eastern North Carolina. And not as a means of escape, but just as a way of uh, pursuing uh, this passion for literature. And so I moved here and took Dr. Don King's C.S. Lewis class, and the other classes were, were great. Uh, his class will always be my favorite. And graduated from there in 2018. Um, worked at Montreat College as a librarian assistant for a while. Um, and during that uh, last semester, we went to Oxford, England for the first time. That changed my life. First time flying on a plane. I was 28, but my goodness, it was an amazing experience getting to actually see the place where Lewis lived most of his life, though he was, he was Irish, born and bred, but lived most of his life in England. And he was always fond of Oxford and Cambridge, though I haven't made it to Cambridge yet. 
and uh, Tolkien lived most of his life in Oxford, and that was just amazing, life-changing. And so um, since that point, I've found good work here in the mountains of North Carolina. I currently work at a Montreat Conference Center, uh, which is actually right across from Lake Susan from Montreat College and Barnes and Noble. I write for a couple small publishers in the UK. I have been able to commit, cultivate an amazing community here in the mountains of North Carolina and all over the globe and Scotland, Ireland, England. And these are things that I thought years ago were wishful thinking, you know, um, I had no idea. I'm just, just, you know, confused agnostic from Eastern North Carolina. And I've definitely in my journey have been surprised by the agape love of Christ, which has ab absolutely shattered what I thought was possible, what I thought was, you know, wishful thinking. And I'm glad that I was proven wrong. Nice. I mean, there are a lot of talking points there. I'll try to hit on a couple of things that kind of stick with me or stick out to me as you're going through. That was a really beautiful summary of kind of where you started to, to now. Um, one thing that, and I kind of picked this up in rereading Surprised by Agape, which I did this week just in preparation for our conversation. But one thing that really kind of sticks with me is just your sort of origins as a child. And, you know, for me, whenever you get into those Southern Baptist, free will, Pentecostal churches. And these are people who are extremely passionate about the way that they communicate with God. But sometimes there are also people who don't fully understand the spectrum of ways to communicate with God. Like there are so many different paths and avenues to him. Mm. And I find that my experience is very similar growing up in a free will Pentecostal Baptist church and in a very, very small uh, city in South Carolina. And I'm sure that we could swap stories all day about what that's like, oh, yes. but it's, oh, yes. it's, it's a very discouraging thing when it comes to growth and adaptation and just an understanding of your relationship with God. Because I find that what happened with me is I learned a lot about God and what God is supposed to be and how, you know, God is sort of portrayed, but I didn't learn very much about how to have a relationship with him. Mm. Um, not only that, but I also learned a lot about judgment and criticism and a lot of things that will really hinder your progress in faith versus like helping you grow in faith. So that really sticks out to me as far as your, you know, your introduction and kind of your earlier understanding of who God is. Um, and I, I can understand it's almost like your, uh, your growth is stunted because you can't grow in a healthy manner with your relationship with him. It's kind of like you're just viewing him as this outsider. You know, what are his qualities? What are his attributes that scripture talks about? Versus how can I know him and how can I talk to him daily? Um, and then just the introduction to C.S. Lewis, because I think, you know, I went to a private school. I went to a Christian school and was in a Christian curriculum. So Narnia was part of my like assigned reading. So yeah. uh, my early experiences with Lewis were sort of like that, that final passage in Magician's Nephew. You're talking about Aslan breeds uh, the world into existence. And that really mm -hmm. sticks with me. Um, and then you get into Caspian and some of those others. And ironically, about the same time as when the movies started coming out. So had the visual companion to the reading experience, which was cool. Um, same thing with Lord of the Rings and Tolkien is like the movies were coming out and there was a visual companion and it was really exciting. But similar to my faith, I didn't grasp or comprehend the sentiment behind the movie. It's just there's a movie and it's full of action and that's cool. But what does this mean about? who God is. And that's kind of yeah. where I think we could probably agree that it's hard to make progress and grow um, until you have those 
outside experiences from that environment. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I can I can relate to your story. The Oh my goodness. I don't know how it was for you and uh, growing up in the small town in South Carolina. And, you know, I respect friends and family that still live in Eastern North Carolina. And, um, but I just remember, although again, uh, love my family and, but just that area felt, there was a, it felt honestly like living in a Stephen King movie. There's this really weird, oppressive atmosphere to it. Um, yeah, and yeah. I just got so frustrated with how Christianity was presented as a bribe and all the, though there were sincere people and they did a lot of good. It was the proselytizing and the brainwashing, which is so dangerous. And um, I, I just found it so frustrating, but I had to learn to not throw rocks at, fundamentalist um and like john foreman said i'd rather build stained glass windows than throwing rocks at people and i thought i really like that and so it it was really difficult after conversion to let go of that frustration and anger towards uh those uh fundamentalism and all that it stands for which it, which is it it is dangerous and um has caused many people harm but i'm glad many people have found healing and hope through finding their own journey like you and I have, and also at the same time, loving those people that it can be rather hard to have a, a dialogue with and not pigeonholing <laughs> them or, or pointing the finger, you know, and just realizing that, uh, we, you know, live and let live, live, learn to live with uh, your disagreements. And in that context, still, still reflecting the agape love of, of Christ in your life. And that's what I've tried to do is, you know, like seek to live out my faith by grace and love people of all, worldviews just like you were uh, talking about in your journey yeah of course and it's i find that it's a real challenge whenever you like for example my church family is my actual family so my church family are like cousins aunts and uncles and things like that whenever i was growing up in south carolina so it's almost better because it's hard to be judgmental and hateful whenever they're your family members <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can also take jabs at them a little bit too, because I mean, I, I think they would all kind of understand my perspective of it's a very strong foundation and it's a very scriptural and sort of literal foundation, but it's also a very narrow foundation. And as much as some of those people fit into that, that avenue extremely well, and they feel very comfortable there, I didn't. So for me, it was more about branching out from that and looking for my own path to the father and sort of an understanding of his grace and love, which I couldn't find in what we were doing. I mean, I think maybe you kind of feel that too, is like, you know, you understand that he's a God of love and a God of mercy, but it's hard to see it whenever there's so much like that oppression and negativity surrounding where you are. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so if you feel pretty good we can move on to the next segment I, I really want to get into some of what you have created some of your work um, oh, thank you got some questions specifically about surprise by agape some quotes that I pulled out and, and it's not that I'm sort of singling that out as like a, the main piece that that people should check out I think they should check out everything you've written but it's important for this conversation because it's kind of like your testimony and it really delivers a lot of information about your upbringing and experiences. Um, so I pulled some quotes from there, but before we get into those, I would love it if you will, for the viewers and listeners, just define what agape love is. Cause there may be some people who are, who are absorbing this information and, and don't really know that word. Indeed. Thank you. So the Greek word agape means the, 
creator is unending and everlasting love for <clears throat> all of humanity. It's a love that never fails. It's a love that always pursues you and that's transcendent and unending and beautiful and the highest form of love that is possible. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my, my wife has it tattooed on her arm. Like it's, it's a powerful sentiment. It's like, uh, it's kind of like a love that we can't necessarily uh, achieve as humans. It's a love that's sort of limitless and unconditional. And that's something that I've struggled with because I'm fascinated by the concept of love in general. But what really draws me to Christianity is it's a love that I can't replicate. It's a love that I'm going to fail to encapsulate no matter what. And so that's what it means to me. It's almost like it's almost like a word that's above my existence. It's kind of just on a different plane. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Um, so a couple of quotes from Surprise by Agape, and, and these will probably open it up for you to expand a little more as well. Um, we kind of touched on the cultural Christianity and the Southern Free Will Baptist perspective. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that I think that really stuck out for me was uh, you say, I'm sure Lewis had his own moments when he wished he could go back to being an atheist, to not being interfered with. Tell me what, uh, tell me how you understand that uh, quote. So in the context of reading him, I know for a fact that even after his conversion, he still had huge, very, very difficult issues with faith being a virtue and not a delusion because when he was an atheist, although he respected people of, that were religious and spiritual, you know, he liked poets like John Milton and John Donne, uh, G.K. Chesterton, and the great Scottish writer George MacDonald. So even though he disagreed with their worldview, he uh, appreciated their brilliance as uh, writers and thought them very, very important. But <clears throat> he still thought it the divine was all nonsense and a human fabrication and from reading surprised by joy or and you know there's also parts in his letters and, and mere christianity and other places in his fiction and essays where you still see that he struggled with doubt and he had those moments where he wished that he could go back to being an atheist and believing that uh the world is um, a sort of uh, cosmic uh, accident uh, and through one in a millionth chance human consciousness came about and the laws of physics and uh, all things would come to an end someday and so he definitely enjoyed that worldview that he would come to critique later on in his life so I suppose he probably just found that really comfortable, especially, you know, when he was wounded in World War One and uh, lost his friend, his Irish friend, Patty Moore. And he, he took care of Patty Moore's mother, Mrs. Moore, later on in his life and lost his mother. So he had some heavy wounds, really, really difficult wounds. And I'm sure that was at the root of his um, atheism. And so when you read those places in his writings, you sort of, you find it comical. He's like, I wish, I'm sure he thought, I wish I could go back to 
who I was in the, when I was at this place in my life, but he knew that to be honest with himself and honest before God, that there was no going back. There was no escape, you know? I mean, he even did surprise by joy when he described his uh, conversion to theism. He said he was kicking and screaming and wanted to get away. And he said, <laughs> and it's hilarious how he described God as, you know, like Frank the Great that wonderful poem, Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven, Lewis described, <laughs> described uh, this God being, wouldn't leave him alone. And he said it, this Christ started to, to do what I, I, I claimed that it could not do. <laughs> um, and he was horrified by that and started to be alarmed because he would meet all these Christian friends at Oxford, Hugo Dyson and, um, uh, well, Owen Barfield was an anthroposophist, but at least he had a, I think, and he was later on a Christian, I can't remember, but a very close friend of his, and at least anthroposophy as a, uh, is a spirit, a sort of an esoteric spiritual view of the world that rejects scientific materialism. And, um, you know, and then he met J.R.R. Tolkien and discovered Chesterton and McDonald. And um, so it was like all these christian writers and uh, christian friends that he would meet and he just found it absolutely alarming <laughs> <laughs> and then of course you know bowed eventually bowed the knee and called himself the most reluctant convert in all of england from that iconic passage from surprised by joy yeah i uh i had a couple of thoughts about this and i i don't know lewis as well as i mean i haven't read him as much as you have but one of the things that comes off as a little bit funny is this idea of the God of heaven who loves us so much that he pursues us and chases us down mm. versus like, I had a conversation somewhat recently with, uh, and I won't state specifically what world religion he was a, a part of um, and what he believed, but he was sort of separating Christianity from everything else is like Christianity has this God that number one died for you. And then number two, like pursues you. Whereas there are a lot of these other gods who like you have to seek out the understanding and you have to sort of elevate yourself to that level to be able to meet them. Whereas the Christian God will like chase you and try to find you where you are. Mm -hmm. um, and I really like that juxtaposition. And it's it's something that I think Lewis sort of captures, especially with his own doubt, um, which comes up again later with John Foreman and, and all these other thinkers. You know, doubt's always going to be a part of the journey if you're doing it the right way. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> so uh, the other thing and you kind of touched on this earlier so you might just be able to expand a bit um, but as I was reading your book it really stuck out to me and it made me think a little bit more deeply um, one of the things that I do remember from Lewis is that idea of you know if there's something that if there's no way for us to feel totally satisfied and there's a deep longing and yearning within us that we just can't satisfy with earthly pleasure or with money or with love or whatever, whatever the case may be, if everybody's got that deep thing, then maybe there's something outside of the earth and outside of this physical life. And that's, I know it's, it's sort of a thing that you can't really argue in a debate and you can't show a lot of evidence for, but I feel like a lot of people have that, that mm -hmm. kind of missing piece. Um, and you talk about that quite a bit whenever you're going through your journey in those dark times. And I mean, I think Lewis talks about it too, and his running from God and his doubt. Is just like there's there's this longing and how do we satisfy that there's only one way to do that so my question is is that the answer for people who are really looking for that evidence of a creator or a mover or a shaker 
mm-hmm. you know, we already have that something had to spin things into existence. So there's that. But at the same time, like, why is it that we're so dissatisfied whenever we have access to all this stuff? And I think that's kind of what, that's where I ended up. That's where I landed on the topic. Indeed. Yes, I do believe so. And as, as important as uh, intellectual questions are and historical questions and, you know, uh, evidence for this or, or that and all of those have their place right but when it really comes down to it it's uh, this innate universal transcendent longing that <clears throat> humanity has and I think you see evidence of it in the great myths and the great stories all these different archetypes and and I've had so many wonderful conversations with people who are you know whether it's uh, about how they're moved by story or story route or some form of art rouses or evokes that that german zinzuk that um poignant joy and they can't get enough of it and they want more and it it gives them a yearning and longing for something outside of themselves i do think that that is a universal experience to humanity and i do think that people are yearning and longing to know their creator the great artist who brought them into being and that was true for me and it's true for lewis and yourself and many other people who i've talked to it's it's reminds me of how important beauty is and how important art is whether it's um you know uh, music or visual or film uh a particular poem or book and I can't get enough of it and I love it. <laughs> it's it's amazing it's wonderful and I love talking with people and whether they you know it's it's DC or or Marvel or uh Neil Gaiman's uh Sandman series or um uh JK Rowling's Harry Potter series or the you know George McDonald's fairy tales or Madeline Lingle's Wrinkle in Time series or Narnia uh, Middle Earth um, you know, Philip Pullman's, you know, his Dark Material series. Um, it's really incredible to hear from people why they like a particular uh, form of art and why they're drawn to it. It's really, uh, really moving. And Madeline Lingle wrote that wonderful book, Walking on Water, Reflections on Faith and Time. And she was really helpful to me in, in my journey. And it's been really incredible to, again to you know talk with all different kinds of people some people share the same worldview some people have a different worldview and what moves them what makes them come alive you know like the switchfoot song when we come alive those works of art uh, or experiences of beauty make you feel more alive and it's although it's fleeting and transient that poignant experience stays with you for the rest of your life yeah, it's, it's, there's some kind of thing that sort of looms over us and we're always trying to grasp it or reach for it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are only certain places where you find it and there are only certain places where you catch it. And then you only have it for a moment. And mm-hmm. so I think that once you catch that sensation and once you understand that to exist, mm-hmm. then there's this lifelong journey of recapturing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think that's that's true for faith. Like when I think about faith and I think about belief and i think about leaning into something it feels like it's a lot harder to believe in things than to not believe in them 
And that may be totally untrue because I don't have that experience of agnosticism, but it feels like to just understand that there's no God would be kind of easy because if there's no God, then we're just a collection of cells and matter and bones and we're just tumbling through life and then we expire and that's it. But if there's a God, then there's this progression and there's this journey and there's this epic and this adventure and mm. we're responsible for it. So it's this heavy weight of trying to do that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So next thing, um, I'm kind of going to shift gears a little bit, but still staying in the same lane of your work. Um, you know, there are a couple of books, Celtic Twilight and Tir Nanag, and they're really structured that in a way that you're discussing uh, different figures and writers. You're also including some poetry, some short stories, some essay type pieces. So I'm really curious about your formula, like how you're, how you're building your books and how does that make sense for you? And is that something that, in my mind, the thing that comes to mind is just diversity. Like I, I wanna have a diverse collection of work and it makes me a little bit easier for me to write if I've got some diversity, but very curious how you feel about that. Uh, so when I, started writing more fiction <clears throat> it was really challenging and i found it difficult and i would submit a few stories for um steven lester carr's witty cat press who does a wonderful job of publishing different anthologies and writers all over the world and his critique of my short stories was very very helpful and he gave me the confidence to write more fiction and so i thought wow and then i found actually that i came to enjoy writing poetry and fiction more so than nonfiction. And I wanted Tirnanog and Celtic Twilight to have a, uh, to be both fiction and nonfiction. And I wanted to write it in a way where someone can read it in one or two uh, sittings. And I want it to capture uh, the power of story and the uh, in influence of the Celtic bardic storytelling tradition and, uh, and evoke a sense of wonder and awe and, and mystery and um, it was a lot it was very challenging but also a lot of fun like a Steve Caught of Inspired who published Marty and Irene Ternanog and Celtic Twilight told me this and it has really stood out to me he said if, just remember all the writing is work if you're not having fun you're doing something wrong <laughs> and he's right and I just found those it was yeah it was a lot of work you know yeah if you want to write seriously, you have to read widely and write every day, whether you feel like it or not. But it was so much fun because you're taken out of yourself um, and these characters come to you and you're not quite sure where the story will go or sometimes you do. And it is, and although some of the stories in both books are pretty, are quite heavy, there's always a sense of the virtue of hope and the healing power of music and literature and art uh, that's really at the heart of those particular books and I was just so excited to try something different because surprised by agape was great and I'm really thankful for you know that Grant Hudson of Clarendon House publications and it was fun co-writing surprised by myth with him um, and Marty and Irene was an experimental book and uh, friend did the cover art Tim Tim great guy if he, if he watches this uh, uh, I thank you for the cover art my friend and it was really fun, you know, it was, I just wanted to try my hand at a full work of fiction, but uh, thus far, Tiernanog and Celtic Twilight have been my favorites because those two books were inspired by a much needed holiday. I hadn't been on holiday for three years and it was 
finally great to get to Ireland and Scotland and England and though and going there for the first time well the Scot I'm sorry Ireland and Scotland for the first time was so was life-changing and just amazing getting to see these beautiful countries associated with uh William Butler Yeats and Oscar Wilde and James Joyce and uh, great uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, also the great Seamus Haney, favorite Irish poet. Lewis has all, well, always been my favorite writer, but as far as poets go, Seamus Haney, my goodness, when I discovered him, I couldn't get enough of his work. And so, yeah. You have to remind me when we get to the end, because I didn't put it in our uh, template or topics, but I, I want to get your, maybe we'll do it during, during your like closing statements. Sure. Definitely want you to make some recommendations for our viewers and listeners. So maybe okay. as we go through, just have in the back of your mind, like three pieces, whether they're books, poems, or, or pieces to listen to. Sure. Um, and that way people can go dig into some inspirational stuff for you. Right. Um, so regarding those two pieces in particular, um, how would you say that those are different? How are they similar? I understand structurally kind of similar, but are there some like, is it like a spiritual successor or a spiritual? Uh, so although Tirnanog and Celtic Twilight are similar in their structure of poetry, fiction, and essays about writers from Ireland, Scotland, England, and America, they are different. And the sense of <clears throat> Tirnanog is inspired by the ancient Irish myth uh, it's a beautiful myth, and in the myth, Tirnanog is the Isle of the Blessed, the Isle of Eternal Youth and Beauty, where the Twa Danu, or the, the fairy folk, the uh, the fae live, and definitely an influence on Tolkien's elves, and definitely an influence on Lewis's imagination, because he heard that as a young lad growing up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and that myth moved him profoundly, and so... I was fascinated when I first came across the myth and when I was in Ireland and got to see places like Dunluce Castle, which inspired Care Paravel in the Narnia books or um, uh, the, uh, the Giant's Causeway, and, uh, which in, also inspired the, the geography of Narnia. It's called County Antrim, which isn't too far from Belfast. Beautiful places in like a fairyland and also in uh, Southern Ireland, the Cliffs of Moher, the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life. Um, that was so inspiring to me. And when I was there, it made me uh, appreciate Ireland more. And Ireland is my favorite country I've ever been to. And so I became, like Lewis was a uh, was so passionate about Norse mythology. He, you know, he loved Celtic mythology, but Norse mythology was his favorite by far. And so, um, uh he, uh, sorry about that. Um, so <clears throat> Tirnanog was definitely an influence on him and his imagination and his writing. And so that ancient Irish myth inspired the book and I give a context on it and it roused that Zinzuk yearning and longing in his life. Um, and Celtic Twilight was inspired by William Butler Yeats and the, what was called the Celtic Revival in the in Ireland at the time and W.B. Yeats was a very important Irish poet and uh, was played a huge role in popularizing the ancient bardic <clears throat> storytelling tr tradition and Celtic mythology and spirituality and the importance of the Irish language and so I 
was so inspired by how much he loved Ireland and how much he was proud to be Irish and um, the Irish bardic storytelling tradition. And he actually wrote a book called the the Celtic Twilight Fairy and Folklore. So I stole that title from <laughs> the book. But you know, um, it's like John Foreman referenced that. Is it? Uh, he paraphrases that T.S. Eliot quote that um, different uh, good good writers borrow and great artists steal. Not calling myself a great artist by <laughs> any means, but I, I like him uh, and I can relate to that. So I definitely got Celtic Twilight from William Butler Yeats and was inspired uh, by him when writing Celtic Twilight. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I love I love Yeats. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's so fascinating that you're able to sort of build something in a way that feels sort of structurally sound routine. Maybe it's a little bit relatable for a reader. It's a little bit easier for a reader, but then they're so different. You know, they come from different places and they have their own sort of uh, inspiration and sources and things like that. Um, you mentioned earlier, Marty and Irene being sort of experimental. And it, it may be, in my opinion, uh, I dare say the most different from all the things that you've written, just because it's a love story and it's not it's mm -hmm. not exactly in the same vein as the others. So I, I guess the question that comes from that is, you know, how do you define romantic love and, and how do those two characters really embody your vision of what that is? Uh, so in my view, a romantic love is uh, a gift from the creator and it's a very powerful thing. And when I was writing that story, um, I got the inspiration for Marty from Back to the Future, Marty McFly. <laughs> um, at least the name, uh, the Marty character is, is different in the story. And Irene, the name Irene was inspired by the character Irene from George MacDonald's wonderful book, The Princess and the Goblin. And in the story, I just wanted to capture the risk that we all take with romantic love um, because one has to come to a place of surrender and you're risking everything to be with someone and you're being very vulnerable and it's not really logical at all, but it's worth it and it's worth coming to a place of surrender. And so in the story, I wanted to capture the, <clears throat> the lows and the highs that these that Marty and Irene have and, in the story, Marty is the more, um, uh, he's not as stable as Irene and, you know, she has a fire, she's Irish, has a fiery Celtic spirit and the more stable of the two. And so it's really challenging for her to develop this relationship with Marty because he is, uh, has been through a lot of trauma and she's been through her own, but he is not as stable as she is. And so, uh, it was very it was very risky for her and so in the book i just wanted to capture the the um importance of romantic love and uh how powerful of a thing it can be if two people meet each other where they are and there's the trust and devotion and surrender and the other and that's what it comes down to you know romantic love is a is a gift and it's it's a choice, you know, feelings are important and yes, there's infatuation and, um, but infatuation doesn't last, you know, and although feelings are important, you can't trust your feelings always. And love when it comes down to it is a choice and you choose someone else over all others. And that's what I was trying to convey 
in that book and also wanted to uh, write a, you know, a great ode to books because uh, Marty works at a bookshop and Irene, and is a writer and Irene is a musician. So it's a great ode to, again, the healing power of music and literature and art and was really challenging. I didn't really know where I was going with it. And <laughs> I've been so thankful for the response. It was definitely an experimental work and I love the cover art turned out well. And Steve called events fire did a really brilliant job with publishing it. My friend Timothy Silver did such a good job with the visual art, exactly how I pictured Marty and Irene. He, he had in his mind and it was amazing. And I'm really uh, and thankful for the endorsements from a uh, local author friend, uh, Henry Mitchell and uh, Irish poet friend, Jared White. So it, it was yeah definitely different than any of the other books. And so uh, it, it, was uh it was good it was good for me to get out of my comfort zone with that one so one of my experiences of writing or one of my earliest experiences with writing is when i was in college i took an intro to creative writing class and the challenge is is and maybe you can relate and kind of experience the same thing but the challenge is you tend to write characters that are just kind of like you <laughs> you know my voice and my experiences just bleed into the characters and so my writing instructor was extremely critical of the fact that the narrative voice is kind of jumbled up because the only thing that my characters can do or talk about or, or act on is my own experience, which is very limited. Um, so maybe that's something that, you know, you experience whenever you're creating a new story is how do I remove myself and what kind of character am I trying to craft? Um, but it sounds like when, you know, writing Marty and Irene that, you challenged yourself and decided to take on um, uh, a novel or a piece that's a little bit different, not really in your wheelhouse. Indeed. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And those experiences of getting out of your comfort zone with your writing, although quite scary and, uh, yeah, well, un scary and unsettling, it's, it's good for you and it, and it teaches you to, to cultivate your craft and you continuously cultivate your craft and get better as a writer. That's really the point. <laughs> um, so this last question might be a little bit leading and it might be a little bit uh, uh, touching on the ego, but what is your favorite piece or passage that you've written? So if you're diving into your own work, what do you look back on fondly and what would you point others to, to, to read? Uh, uh, that's a very good question. So in regard to, favorite book that would certainly be Tirdanog and um it was goodness so much fun and uh love again that ancient Irish myth I'm just fascinated with it it will always be part of my psyche it's always in my mind whatever I'm writing and in uh, fact I wanted to share uh, a, sh a poem from the forthcoming book Celtic song called Tiernanog and I hope people can uh, relate to it so it's called Tiernanog the transcendent desire was there before I ever experienced it in time and space my father's treachery only intensified it and the memory and let me begin that over again I guess when we re-record goodness sorry oh you're good Tiernanog. The transcendent desire was there before I ever experienced it in time and space. My father's treachery only intensified it, and though numerous times I was close to death, 
I was spared and had a potent glimpse of the eternal ethereal place. All the books, songs, films, and rich life-changing experiences evoked the sins of Joy C.S. Lewis and Seamus Haney wrote so poignantly about the two great Irish writers became kindred spirits and helped me figure out that the desire for the mystical isle of Tirnanag, where the Fae live upon, was no delusion, but an objective desire to know my creator outside of myself. My reason, imagination, faith, and desire came together under the spell of the deep magic before the dawn of time. The song of healing sung by the great bard restored my broken heart and mind in Tirnanag with the Celtic song of faith, hope, love, and sacramental bread and wine. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. It really evokes that, what we were discussing earlier, that sense of longing and kind of the, the place that art and beauty and all of these different concepts have. And I wouldn't say amuse, but almost like the driving force. Mm. Thank you. Beautiful. So I'm curious, just kind of piggybacking on talking about your books. What is, what is your process like as a writer? I know you mentioned earlier the jobs that you have. You're a very busy guy. Do you have a routine that you like to do? Do you like to write in the morning? Where do you, what works the best for you? Oh, yes. So I know different writers and artists have um, their own rituals um, or uh, daily habits that they cultivate in regard to their writing for myself. I do enjoy writing in the morning uh, and also... I find, though, that although I enjoy writing in the morning, I write better in the evening or at night. Um, I usually like to brew a good cup of tea or coffee when I write. And I, I find the habit very homely and, and comforting. And um, there's nothing like, whether it's instant coffee, which this is, um, not a coffee connoisseur. I mean, it's 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 a decent kind. Um, or, <laughs> yeah, or um, if so if I'm at home, which I do most of my writing at home, um, but also at a local coffee shop or a pub or a bookshop, wherever I'm at, I will write out thoughts. Uh, uh, if it's an essay or uh, something that's happened in the day, or if it's a song or a memory or a poem, I'll write it out in uh, a journal. I usually like to use a it's a Celtic writing journal that Peter Popper Press publishes, and they've been around since the 1920s, and it's, it's beautiful. Um, that's not the only particular one, but I always like to write out by hand, and then I'll type it up. So that's the way that I go about it. And it, uh, there, every now and then there'll be a day when the day goes by, and I think, oh, my goodness, I didn't write anything, and my conscience will bother me. But for the most part, I do write every day. Um, and it's like if you're a musician, <clears throat> you need to practice every day. Um, if you're a visual artist, you should practice every day. If you're a carpenter, practice every day. If you're a surfer, even if it's winter, you know, and if it's not too cold, you should probably get out in the water, <laughs> you know. So whatever your craft, it's good to, to do it every day because you cultivate it and you discover things and you get out of your comfort zone and the joy that is experienced in the creative process is just absolutely fascinating because you're taken outside of yourself. And like John Foreman has described it, you're had the feeling as if you're used as a vessel of some sort. And it's not about you, you know, you get yourself out of the way and 
um, to reference Madeline Lingle in regard to that, she wrote some wonderful things about that. It gets the ego out of the way and you're immersed in the story or the narrative uh, and it's an incarnational experience and uh, a form of prayer. And you are like Tolkien said, you're co-creating with God in that way. And the times that I feel closest to Christ is when I, um, and uh, this is subjective for different people, right? But that, when I do, uh, the, the times that I feel closest to Christ is when I write um, or when I'm immersed in a, a book. There's something very healing and, um, uh, and, and in very uh, powerful <clears throat> about that, where you're reminded of the great storyteller telling the story of your, your own life. And so, yes, and I find that having those daily rituals is really helpful because if you don't have that daily discipline you can have all the ideas you know but you you're not really going to get anywhere um and you can't sit around waiting for the muse to strike that's that's not how it works uh, if you read the great writers they like ray bradbury he always had the emphasis you know you can't sit around and wait for the muse to sort of show up you know you have to cultivate your craft and also to remember to have fun with it and not take, you know, take it seriously enough. But, um, and it is work, but yeah, um, have fun with it. And Neil, and Neil Gaiman's written some wonderful um, pieces on that as, as well. That's been a, a great influence on me and, and really, really helpful. Yeah, I, yeah, whenever, I, when I start working on something, a lot of the time I will... I used to just write, I would just start. Um, and that worked fairly well for the first like 30,000 words. And then I realized that I need like a poster board and a map mm -hmm. and a schedule, <laughs> because if I don't have, you know, chapter one through the end mapped out, I'm not going to write it. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, I, I definitely write a little bit better at night, I think as well. There was a time when I was working on a blog and I was writing a new piece, maybe once every couple of weeks. And then I challenged myself and I said, I'm going to write every day for a week. And even if it sucks and it's only 200 words, I want to have some piece to, you know, edit, revise and kick out every, every day by the end of the day. Um, mm. And it, it felt very challenging and it felt very stressful, but it also kind of pushed me to think a little bit harder and uh, craft something that worked in a narrative. Um, and so that's kind of my experience too is, you know, if you if you're a person who pursues some type of art or craft, you just have to do it. And even if it's bad, you just keep doing it. And eventually, it won't be bad. Or eventually, you'll write something that you're really proud of. Yes, that that I really appreciate you conveying that because, like I had said earlier, when I started writing, it was absolute drivel and <laughs> bloody awful. But one has to start somewhere, and it took me a while to, because at first I was trying to sound too much like my favorite writers, and then I realized, oh, I'm, I'm although I'm influenced by them, they should help me find my own voice. And once I understood that, they did, and then I found that freedom, and I've been told I have a com very conversational writing style as if someone is in a pub or a, or a coffee shop or a bookshop within i love that because it makes me it allows me to know that i i'm not trying to 
uh, imitate my favorite writers, though you do build off of them. And like you're saying, when you challenge yourself, you find that you are capable of things that you didn't think you would be. And you are discovering new characters and you get inspiration in, in very interesting, unique ways. And you get ideas for books that you wouldn't if you had not challenged yourself. And you have that daily ritual that is a really good structure. It's almost like a liturgy of, of sorts and you're, you're part of it and it's, it's solid foundation. And once you cultivate that, it's, it's there every day and it's something to look forward to, you know, even on the days that you might be tired or you might be stressed or grumpy or, you know, it might be a difficult day or you might be struggling with something or going through something difficult. And in my struggles with anxiety and depression in the past, I've found those daily rituals to be absolutely healing and therapeutic and it gets me out of the out of the way and reminds me that i am part of something bigger than my own self and um it brings you joy and that joy cannot be replaced and it's uh it's an absolutely wonderful thing and also as you were saying uh it's also good to have an outline, especially with if you're working on a, on a story. Some stories I find you don't know exactly where they'll go. And then other stories you do know where they're going, if that makes sense. It's really interesting how sometimes that works. I'm sure it's the same for musicians. Like they get the melody first and then the lyrics come later, you know, or, <laughs> or the lyrics come first and then the melody comes later. So it's really interesting how the creative process works. And and I guess if you're working on a very, on a novel, like when I had Marty and Irene, it was very helpful to have an outline or the next book that's coming out next year, Celtic Dawn. It's been really helpful to have a timeline of an outline for this. So that way it's not all over the place and you do have a good point of reference. So I relate to what you're saying about having a, you know, a schedule and an outline that is a good point of reference and you, and you know where you're, going to some degree for sure yeah I, I i definitely think that without some type of structure you're at some point you're gonna get writer's block or you're gonna fall off mm. and there's nothing more frustrating than writing something really good and then not ending it and not completing it so <laughs> definitely uh something that i feel quite often whenever i'm i'm writing and i'm excited about writing and then i'm like oh i don't know how to finish this so we're kind of done <laughs> oh yeah that kid that can be quite torturous um so I, I it's part of your writing so i wouldn't i wouldn't lean too much into like past experiences maybe just experiences with publishing and creating and things like that so what do you understand your highest point to be and then what would you understand your lowest point to be and how those things affected you uh well certainly my lowest point i'm no academic or scholar and no professional editor and i have found that my lowest points are um, not catching just minor forgivable grammatical errors that my readers have never even really mentioned to me, which my overtly analytical brain freaks out when I see something like that. So yeah, so I could read through something a million times and still not catch it. And that's on me, you know, cause you need to have your, your draft 
to be the best that it can be. And once you submit a final manuscript, you want it to be the, the best that it can be. But I can't tell you how many times it's just small, again, minor grammatical errors. And so I've gotten much better with that. And it's taught me to not be in such a hurry with getting your book out there because you can um, do that and uh, really... Uh, I can give a comical example. Uh, when Surprised by Agape first was published, I did not catch this. I had George McDonald's year of birth wrong, and I didn't realize that. And, you know, not many people have probably even noticed it or even saw it. But my Scottish friend, David Jack, who endorsed it and who does a lot of good work with George McDonald's uh, with translations and books and et cetera, he caught it. And, and I, I felt so embarrassed and I panicked and freaked out and, um, and, you know, no one but me was my own worst critic, you know, many, no one said anything, but he caught it cause he's, you know, knows McDonald's work better than I do. And so as soon as he caught it, you know, I was able to let Grant Hudson, the player in house publications know, and I was freaking out and, uh, it's just the way my overtly analytical brain works. And so he was able to correct it. So this is encouragement to other writers. You will make mistakes. You will Absolutely. not, catch, you will not catch all the edits. You could have a brilliant professional editor, you know, write for Harper Collins or, or Tor or whomever. And there's always going to be a, an error at some point. So let that be of encouragement to know that you're going to make, mistakes and and learn from that and don't let it steal your joy of finishing something that's honest and hopeful and that you're proud of because that's been really difficult for me so that would be a low too is like um the, those errors i can panic and freak out and think oh my goodness um, um i'm a shite writer you know um what am i doing and i know that, and those thoughts are absolute nonsense and and lies and so i've had to really learn to not let those experiences steal my joy that is there when i finish uh, an honest work of art and um in fact and and understand there's an element of comedy in it because to be human is to to be finite and you know you're not going to catch all the errors and you're going to make mistakes you know c.s lewis made mistakes in his work and um, I'm sure, you know, Tolkien did, and um, it, it, you have to learn to laugh at yourself. Um, of course, if you do catch those errors, you want to correct them. Don't be lazy and do correct them. Um, so, yeah, those are, that would be a low, you know, just being very critical of myself, just, again, for, with in regard to forgivable grammatical errors that can be corrected, and they have been, that was corrected ASAP, and this was, you know, goodness, <clears throat> almost five years ago now. Um, so yeah, that would definitely be the, the low point. Overtly analytical, very self-critical, learning to let n not let that steal my joy. And I guess uh, and the high point, I suppose, would be, for me, that joy experienced in the creative process. And it's so wonderful. And uh I love it. I absolutely love it. I, writing is my passion and writing is uh, something that I will always do. And I'm uh, definitely 
feel as if I'm part of a, as you yourself as a writer, well, all writers, I guess, are in a sense, they're part of an ancient, and to, again, to give a Celtic context, I like to think, you know, thousands of years ago before anything was written down, you know, the bards would sing uh, stories to delight and move people. And that's what modern day writers do. So in that context, I guess the highest would be, I feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself. It's a liturgy of sorts. And you're part of this, you know, storytelling tradition that, you know, it's different cultures have different um, ways of um, expressing it. Um, whether it's, you know, the Celtic or the Norse or Native American, German, um, African, whatever it might be. But yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful to, uh, to be in that, uh, Bardic storytelling tradition. And I geek out on the Irish writers and I'll, I'm, I'm honored to, to feel as if I'm part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have, let's say there's a writer who's approaching you who hasn't written anything before and that person just wants some tips or thoughts about where to start and kind of what your wisdom would be as, as a professional and an expert as, oh. in the craft. Oh, well. How are you going to guide that person along just for people who, there may be some people listening who really care about it. It may be somebody who wants to start writing. Indeed, I would say write about things that interest you uh, that make you come alive, that move you. And it could be a memory. It could be something funny. It could be a passage from a book or a quote from a film, whatever it might be. Start small. Don't overwhelm yourself and get it out on the, on the page. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. One has to start somewhere. And that way you can cultivate your craft and, um, and it'll be exciting to see where it will go and, and, and start it. And as Neil Gaiman has said, finish what you start. It, you know, it might take some time, but I really dive into it and see what will happen with it and um, find a, a, a friend or, a, or try to cultivate a community around you uh, and find those kindred spirits that do um, have an appreciation also for writing and for the importance of art. And um, that will be incredibly encouraging because if for me, when I was starting out, I didn't know what I was doing. I would write every day. This was way before Surprised by Agape. And I only knew a few people that um, shared that same passion. And it took a long time, but I, I was sort of, out in the dark with it, but I kept cultivating it and I found people that believed in what I was doing and they believed in me. And that encouragement was immensely important. And I've tried to do the same for other writers and musicians and artists that I encounter because, um, my favorite writers and artists, musicians, um, classic or, you know, or contemporary, they all, have uh influenced me to encourage and to inspire as they have you know and and also to uh read widely if you're uh, going to be a writer you, yes read widely 
classics, modern, you know, you'll find your favorites, you'll find your favorite genres or read outside of your favorite genre. If you're um, a musician, expose yourself to different genres of, of music. So yeah, definitely cultivate your craft and be encouraged and uh, start small and um, write about things that interest and inspire you and uh, try to cultivate a community of genuine kindred spirits that will critique your work and that will offer honest opinions and that will also encourage you and, and build you up and take you seriously. And in my experience, when I found those things, it changed everything. Yeah, and to piggyback on that, just my own advice, if someone were coming to me, because I know it's an experience I had and it's experience that helped me grow a lot. If you write something and you share it with someone and that person says it's bad, there's a chance that it's bad. <laughs> That's okay. Um, it, it's something that I experienced and it's something that I remind myself as a writer is like sometimes what you create is not that good. Um, and keep writing. Because eventually it will be. Unless you're some type of prodigy, it's not going to be wonderful right from the jump. Mm -hmm. So my encouragement is just keep writing. Because if you love it, you're going to want to do it. Indeed, that's solid advice. That's been true to my experience. <laughs> uh, so as far as travel goes, you're a guy who travels quite a bit. And you've seen some of the cool, coolest corners of the world as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I'm curious... What's a travel experience that you've had that really has fundamentally shaped you as a person and as a writer? What's something that you can point to and say, this was big. This was a moment for me. Wow. There are a few that come to mind and those travel experiences were really rich and life-changing. And it, it was a lot of hard work to, to be able to make those trips, but it was worth it. And I was immensely thankful and I was able to get off the time from work and the, you know, the, plan out the itinerary and etc um one particular that comes to mind was seeing dunluce castle in northern ireland and when c.s lewis was a young lad he would go with his brother warney and his mother flora and father albert there on holiday and it is in county antrim and if I remember, I'm pretty bad with geography, but if I remember correctly, Dunluce Castle is uh, maybe about an hour outside of Belfast. Um, but that beautiful castle from, I believe, the 16th or 15th century, it, it felt like, to use a Celtic term, a thin place where the veil of heaven and earth come together. And it was just absolutely gorgeous and breathtaking to you know, look out on the sea and, the, um, you know, the feel the wind and to be right there where Lewis went as a young lad and would often go back and that inspired Care Paravel in the Narnia books and also all that geography in County Antrim that you could see from Dunluce Castle. There's a, there's a beach there and there's some cave you can explore and the Giant's Causeway isn't too far and there's a, whole, a wonderful Irish legend about Finn McCool creating the the giant's causeway and i think if i remember he got in a fight with a, a scottish giant i can't remember all all the details of the story but it's a delightful story about how the giant you know how the giant's causeway was created um that was so inspiring and fired my imagination and gave me the inspiration for tiernanog and i felt like i was on the threshold 
of Narnia. Nice. Do you do you think that your local experiences in North Carolina and college and things like that have more of an effect on you versus the international experiences? Or do you think they're all just one experience that are shaping you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I know it's different for different people. I would say that although the important experiences here in the mountains of North Carolina, they have been really rejuvenating and I love the landscape here. Um, I know the mountains of North Carolina influenced, you know, Thomas Wolfe and Carl Sandburg and uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald um, and, you know, many other uh, poets and, and writers, musicians. And I love it. The landscape, Appalachia is beautiful and it's just absolutely wonderful and it uh, has its own charm and its own unique beauty. And I do find good creative inspiration here and I feel as if I put down roots, but I will say that the experiences in Scotland and Ireland and England have been more poignant and more inspiring. And again, this is just my own experience. You know, some people that live in the States, they might find their local state uh, to be more inspiring than experiences they have outside of the country when they go, you know, it's, and it's always interesting to hear about those experiences that writers have, but yes, and out of them all, Ireland, as much as I love England and Scotland, um, Ireland has been the most inspiring of all. That's awesome. I hope to see it soon. <laughs> um, yeah. COVID has obviously hampered our, our travel plans a bit, but uh, we really wanted to go for a honeymoon to Israel. And oh. ended up just traveling the south because it was a lot safer. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Well, I, I hope you get to Israel someday. I've never been, but friends that have been, they've told me it was really a really powerful experience. And um, yeah, definitely treat yourself and, and go someday. You certainly deserve. So I wanted to go into um, our first meeting because. I don't, not necessarily that it informs your worldview necessarily, but I think it's a nice representation of how artists and like-minded people come together and have these wonderful experiences. At least for me, it's a very memorable experience. And I wanted to lead into it a little bit, and then I'll let you take the reins and kind of share your thoughts and feelings about it too. Um, so a few years ago, Justin and I, we met each other at a concert. It was in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I hadn't seen, at that time, I hadn't seen Switchfoot in a while. It had been maybe a year and a half or so, but I try to see them as often as possible when they're in the Carolinas. Um, but we sort of came together super early. I think we were the first two people at the concert. So, you know, Justin was parked sort of right in front of the venue and I didn't know what I was doing. So I made my way up toward the front and I saw him in his car. All right, perfect opportunity. I'm going to ask this guy because he really knows what he's doing. Um, what to do. And so we came together and ended up going through VIP together, meet and greet together, you know, entertained the concert together, sang together, jumped together and did all that fun stuff. And in the in the small spaces in between things were happening, we were just kind of bonding, which was cool because for me, making friends is kind of hard. I'm not someone who makes friends very easily or finds kindred spirits. Um, so meeting a bunch of people that I didn't know and befriending them all in the same time space was like a pretty crazy experience. Um, and that's just the beauty of music and what that universal language that John Foreman and many others talk about is, you know, you might not relate on some fundamental planes and some fundamental values, but music can bring people together in a way that's just magical and incredible. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so I really wanted to kind of lead in with that. And then we want to get Justin's thoughts on that too. So I'll let you sort of take over. Yes, I remember very well meeting you in 2019 and it was October and I don't remember the exact day, but I do remember it was John Foreman's birthday. It was. Day. And I remember <clears throat> uh, walking up and seeing you and we, I remember saying, hey, you know, and we were talking about our love for uh, favorite or love for Switchfoot and different songs. And then you, and I mentioned C.S. Lewis and you were telling me about how you enjoyed writing and um, you took a, you know, writing classes in college. And so definitely that struck up a good friendship. So it was wonderful meeting you there and uh, brings back a very, very good memory and a very good reminder of how, like you were just saying, music can bring many people together and through a favorite band you can make incredible friends and or you know favorite writers and so it definitely was a start of a, a good friendship yeah i have some positive memories from that experience i have one negative memory being whenever i met switchfoot which is my second time meeting them vip but i went straight to john and kind of said happy birthday and there's always this thing in the back of my mind where I'm thinking one day I'm going to get to play with them. One day I'm going to get on stage. So I went straight for John and I was like, dude, do you need somebody to play with you tonight, man? It was the most ridiculous comment. <laughs> um, and he he's like, you know, you're my guy or whatever. And I kind of knew at that point that they weren't going to entertain that idea. But um, and it, I kind of probably looked like a fool in doing that. But at the same time, it's worth a shot. Um, but I've seen fans get to play with them on YouTube clips and stuff like that. So I kind of shot, I had to shoot my shot and take a shot at getting on stage. But um, it was also a bit embarrassing because I think everyone else in VIP knew it was his birthday except for me. So I picked up that tidbit on the way to him. Um, so it was, it was a fun time. Um, and I remember Justin bringing a copy of his book and sharing it with John and Everyone was really excited. It was a good experience. Um, and the show itself was really, really good. They had a great set list and they threw in a lot of songs that they normally wouldn't play. Um, but the show itself was great. We were very close right in front of the stage. We were one of the first couple of people to get up in that space right in front of the stage. So we were close. And um, a bunch of our friends whom I met during the day were around us too. And they were enjoying the concert with us. Mm. Yes. Very, very good memories the best switchfoot so, show that i've ever seen honestly so what is are you still keeping up with switchfoot what is your what are you listening to right now or um are you kind of up to date on their catalog oh yes i really enjoyed interrobang it's very different um and uh always my favorite album by them will be vice versus um and although all of their albums are good in their own right um they were recently in Asheville and I missed them playing at the Orange Peel and some of the our friends that was at the show in Wilmington were there and I hated to miss them. But, you know, sometimes you have to work and miss live music, but that's OK. Um, so, but I do hope to see them on their Christmas tour that they're going to be um, going on. But, I, yeah, I've enjoyed their um most recent album and uh i've been more so recently though i've been listening to more of john foreman solo work and in fact as much as i love switchfoot now at this place in my life i prefer 
John Foreman solo work because it's more intimate and speaks to me on a more personal level more, but I will always have a great affection for Switchfoot's music. And in regard to other music, I've been listening to the High Kings, which uh, they are an incredible uh, Irish musicians and uh, um, Gaelic Storm, uh, Inya, Howard Shores, you know, Lord of the Rings soundtrack. And, you know, I'll go back and listen to old Reliant K or Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, Sugar Ray, Motown. Um, so it's always good to go back to some uh, old older music. But uh, definitely, as of recently, a lot of John Foreman and uh, uh, Irish musicians. Yeah, you mentioned Vice Versus. I struggle with picking a favorite because Vice Versus is like top two and then um, uh, Nothing is Sound. That's my oh. other top one. So those two are my number one and number two and the order of those two changes. I, I really like the darker albums. Mm. Um, Where the Light Shines Through really caught me off guard. That one was really good and I wasn't expecting it to be so good. Mm-hmm. But all three of those are top tier. And then mentioning Reliant K kind of takes me back to high school a bit, but I still love Reliant K yeah, on occasion. Right. And my wife loves Motown. So she's gotten me into um, all the stuff that I listened to as a kid with my dad. So, like, the, and hopefully she's got you listening to the Smokey Robinson and the Spinners and the Drifters. Yeah, Smokey Robinson. Temptations is a big one for us. We went to see the Temptations off Broadway show somewhat recently. Um, but yeah, no, music is beautiful and, and it's all this universal thing that we can all feel something and learn something regardless of if we like the sound or not. And, uh, I think that the fact that Switchfoot doesn't allow themselves to go into a box and they sort of stick out and do their own thing and not just fall under like that Christian moniker. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just write music for people and they write music for thinkers mm-hmm. is a big part of why I relate so heavily, I think. I completely agree and I really appreciate that about them. And as far as uh, uh, John Foreman's most recent album, Departures, oh, wow, what a powerful album. And uh, The Ocean Beyond the Sea is my favorite song of his. Before that, it was The Cure for Pain. But my goodness, the ocean beyond the sea evokes that Zinzuk and it's very, has a mythical feel to it. And it also reminds me of the Irish myth of Tirnanog. Very powerful song. How about yourself? What would you say is your favorite song by John Foreman? Or one of your That's favorites? That's <laughs> Or um, one of your favorites, yeah. I have so many for both Switchfoot and for John. So for Switchfoot, I would say it's probably where the light shines through mm-hmm. the song yeah it's a good or vice versa the song yeah those two are extremely powerful songs because mm-hmm. they're they come from a place of hurt and they come from a place of darkness and it's mm-hmm. so beautiful that he's able to find truth in that dark place mm-hmm. which i think is what is hard for me as a christian and in interacting with people who are maybe non-believers you know they're the number one question is how can you believe in a God when the world is so dark and painful and hurtful? That's always going to be the number one criticism, I think. Um, And so that's kind of my response is like, I find God in the darkness. That's whenever I want to talk to him and communicate with him the most, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting down and praying when everything is going really well, sitting down and praying whenever it's going really poorly. Right. Um, And so that's, that's 
how why those songs really touch me so much um and as far as john's catalog i really like behind your eyes uh, that one's uh, kind of a cheerful way. one but it's also really acoustic driven oh yeah um southbound train some of the really acoustic stuff like that um are a rank among my favorites for sure because i'm a guitarist so that's that's really what touches me yes indeed thanks for sharing man and uh i will say the um favorite song by switchfoot is if the house burns down tonight that is so powerful it just reminds you of the brevity of life and it's the it's the most quote-unquote rocking song by them it is it's epic i love driving listening to that and they played it in wilmington and i was so excited and ah, (laughs) it was so good so good yeah you mentioned that i remember you saying that's the one you wanted to hear and you got it (laughs) yes so i think one thing that's cool for listeners is the thought that you know all these classic writers and it's true for me too dickinson in particular um c.s lewis Milton as well. Milton is a big one for me. Tolkien. They really inform and shape how I think about things. But John Foreman is a cool example of a modern writer and a modern voice that really informs things. I think for me, Foreman is just sort of someone who's allows himself to sit in the doubt and he's allowing himself to sit in the dark place and he's pulling his truth and inspiration from that. Whereas a lot of people are kind of seeking the truth in the light and the bright and the happy places. Um, so that's a way that he kind of speaks to me, and I, I can totally understand the pain that comes out of truth and the pain that comes out of just human existence. So how is it that Foreman maybe influences you like as a modern voice, as in contrast to some of the classical voices? Wow, that's a great question. And for me, he takes the influences from C.S. Lewis or Soren Kierkegaard and Tolkien um, and older musicians like Bono and U2 and Bob Dylan, um, Bob Marley, Simon and Garfunkel, and he's able to build off of those different writers and musicians, and he incorporates it in his really poignant, brilliant lyrics and melodies and harmonies. And when a modern musician like himself can build off of those foundational musicians and writers and thinkers and communicate in a modern day context that's really hard to do and he does such an incredible job with it and i really admire that about him and there's also not a that sacred secular either or as you were mentioning he uh writes music for people of all worldviews and you can see his faith in his music but it's not any kind of cheesy um platitudes or you know any nonsense like that it's really honest and that paradox of doubt and faith is in his songs and you know jesus i have my doubts is a good example of that and i really admire that about him uh, he's not afraid to express his doubts and his questions. And <clears throat> as someone who is very inquisitive and who, like yourself, struggles a lot with the those existential reality of suffering and pain and um, finding the agape love of Christ sustaining you in the in, in the dark and in the struggles. And and um, I really relate to that and I really admire that about him. And I've been able to just get so much creative inspiration from 
and because some songs uh have inspired some of my stories in fact i wrote one uh uh essay uh with his name as the title inspired by him in tiernanog and i just wanted to write an ode to him um as a modern american poet and uh hope that he writes a book in fact it's about the uh, time he he gets on with it and he he needs to write a book you know i love the music's great but i want a book from him and he hopefully he will <laughs> he'll pump it out and get it out sometime soon man because he he think about all the amazing experiences he can incorporate into a book about the healing power of music and the universality of music and the transcendence of music uh so yes let's hope he writes a book soon sooner than later <laughs> Uh, sort of uh, sort of following up with that, and I think this is a really important question, and I think I try to figure out a theme or a thesis for every conversation that I have, and I think I've kind of identified what the, con the theme of this conversation is, and I think we keep coming back to this idea of healing, and I think that this question really hits it right on the head, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. So for you, is there an obligation to create something that impacts people? Yes. I feel an innate yearning and longing to write honest and hopeful works that will convey hope and healing to people and that it's possible. And also my writings correlate with the way I live my life. And so they both come together and I really am honored when people tell me that something I've written has encouraged them or made them laugh or move, move them or help them through a difficult time and, or inspired them to read Neil Gaiman or Lewis or George MacDonald or Seamus Haney or check out John Foreman. I, yes, I definitely, I, every, and in fact, that innate need continue it, it it has grown more um what's the right word i'm trying to think of it's in it's in it's become even more intense if that makes sense but and it, it keeps me out of my head and it reminds me that it's all about community and human connection and healing in fact there's a wonderful quote and i wish i could remember it this is a paraphrase of it but madeline lingle put it like this that that to write or compose or or paint or draw is an effort towards wholeness yeah that's powerful it's it's mm -hmm. almost like um that peace that you're seeking and that longing that we have it's almost like doing things that are purposeful and intentional are the way to catch that the way to find that it's like you i think it's a common recurring theme in some of those older writers that their purpose is sort of derived and, and grows out of a need to create. And then their creation then follows up that purpose. And that's kind of what I'm sensing in your answer is that, you know, now it's not even an obligation. It's just part of existing, you know, mm -hmm. it's part of, part of who you are. And so I find that very inspiring. Um, mm -hmm. Part of that too. And just to follow up is, do you because i it's becoming harder and harder for me not to express and 
communicate my faith and what I create. It's mm-hmm. just, it's so innate and it's such a part of my voice and who I am that it just sort of comes out, which I think is true for Foreman and true for other writers and musicians. Um, are you able to separate your faith from your work or does faith kind of what's pushing it forward? Um, and how do you understand that? Uh, that's a very good question. So yes, all of my work is influenced by my faith. There's no separating my art from my faith. They, uh, they correlate. And, um, even if the poem is about, uh, James Joyce or uh, Seamus Haney or expressing gratitude to the poet that even though there might not be anything in that poem deliberately mentioning Jesus of Nazareth or Yahweh or, or, you know, liturgy or sacramental view, it's still influenced by my faith because I read every writer in the context of themes of um, uh, redemption and and all the songs that I hear and all the films, even though the artists aren't deliberately conveying that, that's how I view it. And so, and I find that uh, it's uh, get past those watchful dragons that Lewis talked about. And um, you can convey your faith in a way that people respect. And that's been my experience. People, friends that aren't, religious or, or spiritual or if they have a different worldview they come to appreciate it and they understand that it's not a form of uh, proselytizing um, but it's you it, it's you being honest about your own journey that this is my journey and this is how I came to believe what I believe and having people respect because that could be really tricky to pull off in fact I was afraid of that um, there was one friend who is a delightful person and um, an atheist, and you know we have a very different worldview. But she read "Surprised by Agape," and I read her wonderful book of stories and gave her a, a it's very very good and gave her a, a five star review because it, she definitely deserved it. But I was really nervous because I I thought, oh goodness, I hope she doesn't find this to be a form of proselytizing for Christianity or trying to you know uh, form like a or the a work of christian apologetics like trying to give evidence for how i came to believe it but she to my utter relief (laughs) um she after she read it she said that yes this isn't you trying to convince other people to follow the christian god this is your own journey of healing and hope and how you came to believe in christ and the role that myth and storytelling and the healing power of music and literature and art has played on that journey and this is your own journey. And so that was such a relief. Uh, so that, that can be really tricky, you know, cause there's a lot of, um, Christian art out there. That's dishonest. That is not true to life. That's really harmful to people. Um, especially that have been wounded by, you know, the church or maybe a fundamentalism and some, things that out there are downright cheesy you know like god's not dead i mean that's yeah i mean things like that <laughs> and, it, and it's not and i know some people probably find it helpful and you know a, a person's experience of art is subjective but 
um yeah I, I think things like that can be quite harmful you want your art to be the best that it can be and not to like have the cheesy christianese if you will um or uh to be some form of proselytizing but you want it to be honest and hopeful at the same time so that's been always my approach and and it's what i tell people to and and then and the way i live my life again i live out my faith by grace and love people of all worldviews and my my daily life and my writings they all correlate and i think that's the way that it should be my favorite artists and, and writers and thinkers um not not all of them you know because some were pretty um terrible human beings um but for the most part <laughs> they uh their daily life correlated with what they were writing about yeah, you're always going to have your like edgar Allan Poe's who you know maybe wrote a couple of really cool pieces but maybe the <laughs> personal yeah. life didn't line up so much the way that you wanted it to <laughs> yeah or, or yeah or like f scott fitzgerald uh you know the prose of the great gatsby is great but man apparently he was could have could be a very nasty individual and was not the most pleasant and i've even read um pieces from ernest hemingway who knew him very well that um i know they were friends but yeah hemingway said he could be very a very difficult individual i guess the, i guess the final something that i ask every single person and i'll continue asking every person is what it, what are you leaving behind if you died today what is it that you had to say? What is it that was important? And did you say what that was? And I, I know what John Foreman's answer is. So yeah. I'm definitely got my ears perked for your answer. <laughs> well, I would, uh, what I hope to, what I would hope to say or to leave behind is that life is a precious sacramental gift and to, uh, and the people that are in it are, you uh, know, uh, uh, <clears throat> Uh, an amazing sacramental gift and it is a good thing to be alive and loved and appreciated and to have that in your life is absolutely amazing and I want to always be a, a writer uh, honest about the struggles and pain and doubts uh, that are universal but also a person of hope because I couldn't ever write anything that's nihilistic or you know there's and there's already enough of that in the world and in fact I think it takes great uh courage to um be a person of hope a person of faith hope and love and so i definitely want to leave that behind and also encourage people to um read the great myths and to um you know delve into narnia and middle earth and neil gaiman and be part of that ancient bardic storytelling so to conclude, what I'd like to do is kind of the, the structure that I've been using for these is I want to um, ask you a series of 10 questions. And for those listening and watching, this is inspired by uh, James Lipton, rest in peace. He had a show called Inside the Actor Studio in the 90s, and he concluded every interview with this series of 10 questions. So for me, because I'm, I'm a guy who kind of cares about context and things like that, I changed some of the questions out to make them a little bit more family friendly. Some of them were a little bit explicit. So, so they're not an exact copy of the questions that James Lipton would ask his guests. Um, so the, the idea here is just rattle off the top of your head, whatever comes to mind first. And then after we get done with that, 
I'm going to go through and kind of summarize the, the conversation and give a share a few thoughts. And then after I get done sharing some thoughts, I'm going to turn it over to you for the last word. So you can share whatever you're feeling, whatever thoughts you have about the conversation. And then don't forget to let people know those three recommendations because I haven't forgotten it. That's important. Um, and at the end, we'll shout you out. We'll tell people where to find your books and we'll be good to go. So kind of kick it off like this. So first question, what is your favorite word? Epic. Okay. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Rag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what excites you? Pubs. Fair. Um, what sound or noise do you love? The sound of a latte being made, so steamed milk. Okay. I'm, mm. I'm slowly, just as a, a tangent there, I'm slowly building an affinity for coffee and sort of figuring out what I like, what I like so, so I, I can get in there. Um, what upsets you? Psychological manipulation. Oh, good one. What sound or noise do you hate? Chalk on a board. <laughs> uh, what motivates you to act every day when you wake up? My faith. Okay. Um, let's see. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Becoming a mu musician. Okay. What profession would you not like to do? Uh, being a lawyer. <laughs> Got to construct some arguments. And uh, finally, last question, and feel free to build on this one if you want into the your final thoughts. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You lived a good, full, long life. You enjoyed good Guinness. You loved your your wife, your family, your friends, and you pursued your uh, vocation as a writer, and you had a very good sense of humor. I love it. I would love to hear that, too. Hopefully I get something yeah. similar. I'm, I'm assuming you'll get that at the end. Um, so just to conclude, I'm going to share a few thoughts, and then I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of conclude and give your, give your summarizing statements. statements. We'll shout you out, and we'll be done. So my opinion, I think it was a really good conversation. I think the themes that we kept hitting were really that theme of healing and that theme of universal truth. Um, writing, music, all those different things really come together to inform our perspective of the world, but they also connect us. And so I think people will really gather from the conversation that we're two people who are really connected by some of those big moments and some of those inspiring writers and themes that they um, put in front of us. And if we both heard some of the same things and we both grew out of some of the same things, that means they must be pretty important. Um, and I feel really good about that. I feel really positive about that shared experience. And that's really how we build these connections as humans. Um, so that's my feeling, my sentiment. I really enjoyed having you on. Thank you for your time. Thank you for patience and bearing with us, bearing with me through some technical difficulties along the way. Um, which hopefully readers or listeners and viewers, you're not picking up on that. <laughs> um, the magic of editing hopefully has corrected it. So I'm going to let you speak and give your final thoughts. And then please 
share some recommendations for people listening and then let everybody know where they can find your works. Indeed. Well, it, it was quite an honor to be on your show. I thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation and I'm glad to promote your podcast and um, people can find my works on uh, Amazon. So if they Google Justin Wiggins, uh, my writer's page will come up on Amazon. They'll find uh, Tiernanog, Celtic Twilight, Marty and Irene, Surprised by Myth, and Surprised by Agape. They can also Google Inspired Justin Wiggins, and that'll uh, pop up. Uh, my books will pop up on that website, and also um, uh, Clarendon House Publications website. If you Google Justin Wiggins, Clarendon House Publications, and also have my Facebook uh, writer's page and Instagram as well. And in regards to three particular works that I would recommend, one would be a book called 100 Poems by Seamus Haney. It is a, an incredible book. Uh, Seamus Haney is my favorite Irish, Irish writer. I have great respect for him. Uh, the second book would be Stardust by Neil Gaiman. It is a delightful, whimsical, moving, brilliantly written fairy tale. And Neil Gaiman is one of my favorite modern day writers. And the third book that I would recommend would be Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis. It's my favorite work by Lewis, and it's such an honest expression of how he found his literary vocation, his identity in Christ, and his love for myth and um, the and literature, and really powerful. So those are three particular works that I would recommend for readers. Beautiful. All right. Well, I thank you again for your time and for coming on. Like I said, like it's said, been a great, been a great experience. experience. I'm going to hit our outro music, and then we're good to go. Cheers.